Welcome back to another fabulous episode of the Change Cultivators podcast. I'm Patrick Fitzmorris, and I once again am here with my fabulous co-host, Roz. Hi, Patrick. Good to be back. And we are delighted to be here with Mike Anthony. Mike, I'm going to let you say hello first to our listeners, and then I'll give a little bit of more details about why we're excited to have you here. So hello, Mike. Hello, everybody. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Roz. Excellent. Mike, uh, we're excited about this. I suspect our listeners will be treated to hearing a lot about the world of commerce, the world of retail, the world of consumer marketing, the world of shopper marketing, things that are fast changing. And there's so much disruption and dynamicism to those marketplaces. And you have a pretty long and rich and storied history in this space, working with uh, CPG companies across the globe. You've written and authored the best-selling book, The Shopper Marketing Revolution. You are widely known as a blogger on the subject. So we are delighted you've taken a couple of minutes to help us tap into your expertise. But before I get to that, There's a great model you've shared and you've anchored your career on around the total five-step marketing process that I understand somehow came to fruition on a beach in Thailand and has served you well over a number of years. Tell us that story first. Okay. Well, look, uh, yeah, one of the benefits of founding your business in Thailand, and this wasn't the main reason for doing it there, but you do get to do your business planning on the beach, Patrick, which is uh, kind of nice. So yeah, look... um, after, uh, as you say, a career in marketing and in sales um, that took me from the UK, where I'm originally from, into Africa, Eastern Europe, and finally into Asia. Um, I then went into a consulting role um, and then formed my own business. And um, I guess the observations I'd seen from sales and marketing teams, both the ones I'd run and the ones I'd seen in other clients, kind of brought into Engage. And I saw, well, firstly, Sales and marketing teams don't always play well together, right? Uh, sales teams can be very customer focused. Marketing teams can be very brand focused, um, and doesn't necessarily fit together. Um, the other piece that we saw missing was focus on shoppers. Um, there was retail focus and consumer focus, but nothing around shoppers. And one of the jobs I'd had, Patrick, in the past was uh, working for Mattel, and that's kind of where I saw it most viscerally. You had a business which was completely focused on how you get an eight-year-old girl to fall in love with Barbie or an eight-year-old boy to fall in love with Hot Wheels um, with no real cognition that these people might not even be there in the store when mom or dad or grandparents is making a purchase decision. So Engage, the business, was built um, and named about how you bring sales and marketing together and shopper being the glue. And as we set out building the business, you know, I built um, or we built a map of exactly how marketing and sales fitted together. It was pretty complicated. Um, I got a physics degree and I think the uh, the science nerd came out in me when I was <laughs> building this model. And I remember presenting this to a client and saying, here it is. And him saying, Mike, that's, 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 that's brilliant, but no one's going to understand it in my business. <laughs> uh, and he just said to me, he said, yeah, you know, Mike, could you maybe just boil it down into, into, I don't know, five key steps. And I will confess, Patrick, that I was I was pretty, pretty, pretty pissed at that point, right? It was, anyway, I took it back and Toby and I went away and did our, did our business planning and we were sitting there and I was telling him and I told him and I expressed my, my frustration and he just sat there and says, yeah, but Mike, um, I get all that, but if it was five steps, what would they be? And that's when the doodling in the sand began and we created, a, uh, created this approach which starts off looking at consumers because that's what it's all about. Um, maps that into shoppers because without shopping, consumption doesn't happen. Maps that onto channels, onto a marketing mix, and onto investment. And that 
spawned all of the thinking. From a beach in Thailand. And I love it because it's like the first big nugget that we have from this conversation is that you can think through the details of a really complex system, but unless you get to elegant simplicity, you actually can't engage other people into it. So I love that name for your firm. And I love the notion of physics, which yes, can overcomplicate things, but the most (laughs) inspirational things in physics are the ones that get remarkably elegantly simple. So thank you for sharing that story. That's really powerful. Welcome. Yeah, Patrick, and it also reminds me of our conversation with Cassandra. Uh, Mike, we had a, a lady called Cassandra Worthy on, and she she speaks about negative energy fueling your growth. So when I was <laughs> listening to you say that, that client asking you to distill it down to five points, the thing that made you so mad is what fuels your growth, which is which is fantastic. Um Mike, you know, we've seen the industry go through unprecedented change, you know, over the past few years, you know, notwithstanding the pandemic, which has accelerated it even more over the last year. But with regards to shopping behavior, we've seen so much of a shift because of digital and, you know, brand alignments and brand preferences and shopping behaviors and all that sort of thing. And while I don't want to, you know, focus on the pandemic as such, it really has brought yet another you know, lightning fast um, uh, round of changes to to businesses and consumers. You know, consumers have overnight changed their shopping behaviors again because they've had to. Tell us a little bit about what you are doing with your clients over the past year specifically. um, What have you been doing with your clients to help them navigate, you know, these these stormy seas? um, You know, I don't want to make it sound a negative because it's also a huge positive, but it has been turbulent times for everybody. And uh, tell us what, what you're hearing on the ground and how you are guiding your clients through this. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think the uh, you're absolutely right. First of all, um, it's it's been a turbulent time for retail the last five years or so, and and then the last the last twelve months, eight months, whatever, um, have been even more turbulent as well. And I think um, the, one of the challenges I think has come to to the consumer goods industry, if I talk about the entire industry in total, is that. Um, the consumer goods industry doesn't do change very well. It's it's been a an industry which has followed relatively long and slow trends. Um, you know, things grow steadily. Um, you know, one channel will grow, one retail will grow, or one will decline. But it's it's not typically been over the last twenty or thirty years something where things have shifted dramatically. And so, one of the challenges that we've seen, and we saw this, you know. When e-commerce first started driving in China, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, was that organizations just really weren't ready for some of the the speed of change, um, the unpredictability of change, um, and the complexity that it creates. You know, when you think you know where the world is going to go, and you think, well, my business next year will look broadly the same as it did last year. You know, this one's going to be a bit bigger. This one's going to be a bit smaller. The challenge of being able to say, well, suddenly I've got to do things differently, quite differently, is difficult. And so that's often been the challenge that has got us into clients. And, and the way we work with them is to say, well, what's actually happening underneath this? Um, now, on the surface, it is all turmoil. But what's really going on underneath? What's happening? Why is this happening? Now, the pandemic is... Uh, uh, a moment in time, and things will change again afterwards. We can talk a little bit about that later on in this call, I think. But what's been going on over the years is that there's been some very fundamental shifts in the way people shop. Um, 
people were moving in one direction for a lot of their shopping towards bigger shops, going to the same place to buy lots and lots of things. And then about five years ago, um, a few things came along that catalyzed that change. Uh, in many markets, it was e-commerce came along and said, well, actually, there's another way of buying stuff that's really convenient and get a really good price. And that works for some of my purchases. Um, discounters have come along into many markets and again, given people a different option where they can buy really good products at a pretty good price. And it doesn't take quite as long to shop in a discounter as it does to shop in a Walmart. So I've now got another option. And so what we've seen is, is shoppers making actually predictable decisions. But if you look at the surface, it looks like a mess. If you try and map why they're doing it and what they're doing, it, it's simply that there are new options put in front of them. What makes retail, I think, really interesting is the fact that we don't flip immediately from one model mm. to another. You know, if you think about um, you know, 25 years ago, if you wanted to drive across the country, we all got a road atlas out, right? Um, and we looked at paper road atlases and we mapped our journey, right? And now, well, how many, how many, how many people listening to this now use a road atlas, right? But, but that's what we do with shopping. We do the equivalent of, sometimes we use Google Maps, but then every now and then we say, you know what, today I'm gonna to use the road atlas. I mean, we still use supermarkets. There are still vast percentages of the population of markets such as China, such as the US, very developed markets, where a lot of people are doing most of their shopping in the way that we did 20 years ago with a big basket every week or every two weeks. And that complexity looks yeah. really messy. But to echo some of the points that Patrick's making, underneath it, there is a relatively simple set of things which are driving that behavior. Now, if we can understand that, we can actually map our business much more effectively against what looks like complex change mm. in the service. And, and I'm also, you know, you're talking about going to one shop where you bought one thing all the time and now you've got all this variety. So you've got the variety of price, you've got the variety of models, of shipping times, all that sort of thing. So this is also bringing in, you know, what is driving the consumer decision. Um, you know, is it the company now or is it, uh, you know, peer group uh, referrals or whatever. So it's it's really shifting um, sands for a lot of companies because what they used to look at in their business, which was, as you say, was very predictable. There's a lot of unpredictability now. And I wanted to just touch on a, a topic that I'm so fascinated by, particularly over this last year, you know, during the pandemic, we've seen some brands make changes very quickly. You know, they've seen the world is changing. They've adjusted their business model fast. We've seen other brands going, hang on, this is going to disappear when we get back to normal. You know, things will be as they are. And I've been very surprised by some of the brands that haven't moved fast enough. Um, so it's it's quite interesting, the brands that are, you know, managing to survive during something like this. And I think what from your expertise in the space are companies getting right with regards to adapting fast, you know, particularly over the global events in the last year? And what do you think they're getting wrong? What's the difference between those that are succeeding and not succeeding? Um, I think there's two things, though, that I see tied together and maybe a third that attaches to it. Most of the organizations or many of the organizations that I see who are being seen to have adapted well or shown flexibility, which clearly is what this is all about, right? It's about adaptation and flexibility. But a lot of the organizations 
that were that have done that are organizations that were very well positioned anyway. Um, now, part of that is about you've kind of got some momentum in the right direction anyway. Part of it is about you've already got the flexibility and therefore you're already in a better situation. But you know what, if you were an offline, go back to retail, if you're an offline retailer and you weren't already pretty well advanced in your e-commerce business, you were going to find this really difficult. But to be honest, you were gonna find it difficult anyway. It was already difficult for you. And the reality is, is that if you, if you were an, on, an offline retailer and you hadn't already made massive steps towards online, you were you were you were you were already not reading the market. So you already had all of the problems about not being flexible, about not being forward thinking, and all of that. Whereas so many other organizations were just sitting there saying, Well, they're, I'm already on that, right? And I think one of the realities is, is it's really easy to speed up a business, really easy to slow a business down. But doing U-turns is damn, damn difficult. Mm. That's a and, and that's a, such a fascinating way to say it, right? Now, there's there's so much in that little piece that I want to I want to I want to put a put a pin on, right? First of all, you, you kind of made the comment that um, consumer goods companies are really slow to change, right? Um, I'm applauding, right? Because and it's it's more than just consumer goods companies, right? It is effectively organizations are slow to change because they operate on process and 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 processes are act, activated in the past. I want to push on that, like. How do you, as a consultant, as an expert in this field, as the guy who wrote the book on the shopper marketing revolution, what do you do to get them over the hump and unstuck and say, crap, you're right, Mike, I have to think differently about this because that fights every piece of organizational inertia and leadership inertia to push them over. So is there anything that you do that really helps them stop and go, all right, Mike is right. I've got to actually pause a little bit here and I've got to think about why I need to be different. Help us with that. Okay, um, so here, here I have to, I'm going to have to own up to a little bit of humility and, 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 and be open with you here and say, it's not that easy. Um, <laughs> and actually a lot of the time it is an external factor that pushes people over the hump. Um, you know, I can kind of take them to, to take them to the foothills, if you like, um, and get people saying, yeah, yeah, that's great. I think we should, we need to do that. Um, but, you know, I, may, I referenced, you know, some of the early, early changes in e-commerce in China, which was kind of running about four or five years ahead of the rest of the world in terms of e-commerce. And so many people just didn't get on board until it was right. on them and they had a problem. Um, so first thing, first thing, you know, getting people to change who are comfortable is difficult. Um, Arguably, therefore, you know, pandemics are great for consultants um, because, it, you know, and, and indeed it, it will be good in a way because it does force people to do the things that they were still comfortable enough. They were the, it's the, the adage of you know, slowly boiling a frog uh, and that sort of story. Um, but I think the, the, the way to the way I find to do it is, is to really dig deep in and to understand what is that pain. Right. Make sure people are aware of the pain. Allow that frog to to be able to take the temperature of the water and say, you know, and this is not going to get any better, is it? But getting them over the hump sometimes needs a shove from outside, Patrick. Yeah. Well, and, and particularly in these entrenched industries. So you and I kind of share a passion about commerce and retail, right? Uh, we've kind of gone on parallel paths at some point in our lives without knowing that for, for sure, right? So I'm thinking back to my time in the in, in the States at the Path to Purchase Leadership University when I kind of created the whole curriculum out of this. And we did a history of retail. Um, and you're spot on. Retail doesn't change. 
except when some pivotal moment happens when there's rapid change, right? So you think about the growth of large format grocery stores. You think about the, you know, the the scanning data, the availability of data sets back in the 80s that powered category management. Um, at any step of that along the way, there are some pioneers who kind of get it right and say, crap, I will not grow and I will not be able to capitalize on my business to be able to do that. So I love your comment of external disruption. So I'll leave, I, and I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. Um, back to this, right? How do you in this day and age say to people who are probably in panic mode coming out of pandemic saying, you can't just react. You've got to leapfrog. You've got to forward think. You've got to get your head on it. And I know we'll spend a little time talking about chopper economics in a minute. So I don't want to go down that path, but just as a pure leadership kind of hitting them on the head, going, wake up, people. Legacy systems will fail you. Think about how to do something different. Any thoughts? Yeah, look, I, I think so. I, and I think it is about um, what I've been, 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 the conversations I'm having with clients very much about, and I think that, you know, begin to have much more now than maybe six months ago, where six months ago, people were right in the head of it. Now people are beginning to turn to the future and now really asking questions about, great, so where do you need to be? Um, and where are you now? And what is the steps? What are those steps that you're planning on taking? And what I find is, is that smart leaders are able to sit there. And as you go to that third piece, they see the gaps. The reality is that, that, that it's, you know, I'll use Google Maps as again. It's, it's like you put, your, you put your current location in, you put your destination in, and then you look at it. And you say, whoa, that's going to be a tough journey. And I think actually it's, it is literally about getting people to be very clear about what is the destination, where are we now, and then the recognition that the toolkit is no longer fit for purpose. Perfect. And I think that's the point where the penny drops is like, yeah, we're not going to get there, are we? And at that point, you're having a different conversation. Perfect. Great. Thank you for that. Yeah, with all these changes you know, I think people are looking to, okay, where do I get the answers? Because as we're talking, I'm thinking there's a lot of open-ended uh, questions here because we don't, we know we've got to go there. We know we've got to be ahead, but the answers aren't always there. So, you know, this brings me back to the, you know, you and Patrick were talking about data. Um, business leaders are relying more and more on data, but what we're also seeing is that People are trusting data less, which is which is very interesting. And I think Gartner predicts by, um, I think it's by the end of 2023, 70% of companies will have an AI specialist in the business because what they're seeing is that there's all this data coming up, but people are starting to say, well, hang on, I don't know if I trust it. So I want a human being to interpret the data and make sure it's being presented to the boards or the management teams in a, in a proper way. Um, and we had a recent podcast with Alan Hosking, who's a, a leader, a very influential leader on the future of work. Um, and he speaks about being able to see the unseen. And sometimes we miss the invisible disruptors. And we also had Josh Reynolds on um, that launched a recent uh, market research uh, report on B2B tech purchasing decisions. And in that, it, it came out this, this topic of trust, which I've mentioned is that people are scared to make decisions. They, they don't trust the data like they used to. And Mike, I saw you did a, a LinkedIn post, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading on um, fake news creeping into market research. So how are marketing and sales leaders often missing the truth um, behind this hype? And how are they making decisions based on these facts? What, what should marketers be looking at 
um, you know, before they go into the next research headline, you know, that they're seeing on social media that's supposed to be data driven? That's a, that, there's, there's, there's a lot of really interesting questions bundled in there, Roz. So, I mean, first of all, yeah, we've got a problem um, in that we've got a, or a situation, let's say, where you've got industries becoming more and more dependent on data. Um, and um, while data is brilliant and data is great, and look, as a business, we make lots of money out of, out of using data and helping our clients use it to make decisions. Um, I think there are times where we become more reliant on data and not, not on insight as what we can make from this. Um, and I think uh, there's, there's a number of elements I would bring out. Firstly, one of the challenges that we face today, certainly this industry faces, is that we don't have the data reads we used to have. Um, again, we used to be able to go back and look at, well, what happened last year and what happened the year before and what happened the year before. And of course, as the pandemic has shown us that history is not necessarily such a valid indicator of future as it was before. So that's a disruption, but I, I would argue that that's a good disruption because it forces us to think differently about the data and the facts that we look at. When we start thinking about the data and the facts we look at, we start looking at different sources of data. So, Roz, you and I were talking about Amazon reviews as a way of understanding data. We were talking about you know, picking up third-party data on the internet. But, of course, that's data that we don't necessarily know exactly where it's come mm. from. And the example I had in this, the, 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 the post that you picked out was, was, was a, an article with a headline which was completely misleading when you went back and dug into the details of the report that went behind it. And there's a key word you used in there, Roz, I think, which is facts. And I think what we've got to be very, very clear on as we go and doing the right thing, looking beyond a one data source and looking at lots of different data source is the difference between facts and opinion. Facts are great, but let's make sure we're not mixing up facts and opinion. But we're also not expecting the facts and the data to give us the best answer. Mm. Um, because they will give us a track on what has happened in the past. And if anything in the last eight to 10 months, anything we've learned from it is that anything can happen. Um, I think the challenge where we work with our clients is, is great. We have some facts. It is in the world of shopper. It is information about a whole bunch of how a bunch of people behaved sometime in the past with some set of stimulus. That is all it is. Mm. It does not tell you what they're going to do next, because in the future, they're going to be in a different situation with a different set of thoughts and a different set of ideas, um, and they're going to behave differently. So what we need is a skill set, and this is where insight comes in, a skill set to be able to read facts and turn it into a prediction of the future. Mm. Now, the better those facts and the better we are, the less uncertain that prediction will be. Yeah. But it's still just a prediction, and it is uncertain. And if we as an, organ as, a, as an industry, if we can get better at the differentiation between a fact and a belief and an opinion and a forecast, um, we can actually start separating this and saying, look, data is brilliant. It gives us more facts to base our worldview upon. But it isn't the answer. And where the answer is about people. It is about people who can come in and turn that into magic and say, on the basis of those facts, 
this appears to be the best course of action because yeah and i see, i think we're seeing this more and more and, and it's it's quite daunting i think for many people to navigate because this concept of fact and opinion is so true you know a lot of people are taking the opinion as fact because it's just getting fed to them i mean you could see the that movie the social dilemma you know even just how we target it so you know and patrick and i've spoken about this with some of our other guests it's a good leader has curiosity now curiosity to actually and you mentioned multiple uh data sources you as an individual have to take the responsibility to go and do the research yourself now because if you just taking the first two or three things you see on google there is this blend of is it a fact or opinion i don't know opinions becoming fact and is that the right driver so you know leaders have to now step out and make time to actually do more work to say am i being properly informed or am i just taking what's coming at me um and making the wrong decision so it's a, it's an interesting time for all of us on on self reflection carving out different spaces in your mind as you lead and you know manage your teams yeah absolutely but i think there's some, there's some, there's some, there's some good things that i would say and and what i would say especially is you know um don't trust anything <laughs> um as a good starting point yeah. i think you know and sorry if that if that's a tainted world view um but you know trust trust data as facts right if you can't see the data then you shouldn't automatically trust it um check the source check where it came from check for a vested interest right you know if you if you read a report that's written by a company who does a certain service they may have a vested interest in that right um check your heart check your guts and this is a message out to all of those marketing people out there you know i know you'd love to build a brilliant social marketing campaign around a cool influencer but make sure that's not the reason why you're doing it just be honest check your gut check common sense right you know if you see a piece of data i wrote a blog a while ago is it like 80% of shopping decisions are 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 researched on a mobile phone just stop and think <laughs> what would that actually look like would you what would you see in a store if 80% of shopping decisions were researched on a mobile phone and of course it wasn't it was actually a piece which said 80% of shoppers have researched a shopping decision on a mobile phone now that's something i can see because i can see that i've done it i can see it that my mum's done it my wife's done it but i go to a supermarket i don't see everybody stopping for 3 minutes at every aisle checking a product so you know it's easy to swallow stuff particularly when it kind of fits with our paradigm and i think at those points it's just that stop and say well hold on a second just whoa do i have another data point and that data point could just be well when i go shopping i don't see that right that's yeah. so but but here so let me push back a little bit right just for fun okay um the physics guy the science guy <laughs> who you confessed to being earlier just told me that i don't need to be worried about facts right so the science physics guy just told me that and so i'm going to connect it to this people thing and talent development because i hear you passionately say and it's a point that i believe in and raz i know i've talked about it um in times of rapidly disrupted change people your talent have to be willing to process things differently they have to open their aperture to be able to understand so square that up for me physics guy facts people have to be more disruptive how do you guys as you work with your clients get people to think differently about thinking through data points versus true human behavior insights what do you do what some things you really help people get over that hump with Okay look I think there's a couple of things so first we just because I facts are brilliant all right just going on record facts are brilliant <laughs> Okay um, what well, your your, phys- your, phys- your physics credentials are now un 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 okay, just, just in case there's any is any any physicists out there going to kick me out of the uh, out of the secret society or something like that I don't know 
Um, <laughs> listen, look, I think it is actually perversely. I, I, when I do like when I do conference gigs and things like that, I'm standing up on a stage. I make a joke of the fact that I'm a I'm a I'm, I'm a physics major doing you know doing shopper marketing and, and like how useful is that? But actually, you know, it is useful, right? Because the genius of science is not the guy who can just read the data. Um, the genius of science is, you know, is the guy who looks through his telescope and sees dots moving around and dots moving and works out that there are, you know, there are moons circling a planet. Um, it's the genius of someone like Einstein who actually, you know, built the theory of relativity before it could even be measured, before we even had the me measuring tools to be able to do it. So I think there's plenty of space for genius in, in science and marketing, but it is about being able to say, I've got some facts. Um, what does that say? What does it not say? What do I build out of that? And it's happening, it is the blend of creativity that I think is, is presence is science, is to be able to sit there and say, well, one model is that you know, all of these planets are held in disks circling around the Earth. But there's another way of looking at exactly the same data points. Yes. Yes. Uh, and you may get hung for it um, or executed for it. Um, but fundamentally, there's a different way of looking at the data. And that's, I think, where the human art of marketing fits with the science part of the data. Perfect. Because that, that's so clarifying for our listeners as we listen to that, right? We are swimming in data. And as Ross said before, more and more data is coming our way, right? And so, there, you know, we, as we live our lives day to day and we walk around with cell phones, we are just exhausting data out there that is being harvested and harnessed to kind of do something. So this notion of data is really important. Uh, is not going to go away, right? So your physics credentials are, are in good stead now because the facts and the data are important. But this notion of you have to connect data points to create true insights. And I love your analogy of an astronomer looking at space. Wait, I observe this and I observe this. So that's the facts. But wait, the real idea here is the interconnectedness um, and this notion of interconnected data sets. And I think everyone in business needs to pause and say, wait, I have lots of stuff flowing at me. It's up to me, the human, to try to create interconnectedness among data sets and really create true insight. Now, I'll end my, my little kind of probing here on this. As you guys talk about it, do you have a clear definition of what an insight is? I was asked this when I created the leadership curriculum. Kind of, well, we have to teach people what an insight is. Um, do you guys have a way you think about that? Like what would define a real insight versus a fact to you guys? Um. That's a really difficult question because, you know, the thing is, is if you talk to the insights community of the, of, 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 of the world out there, you know, they get very, they, some people get very, very precious about an insight, you know, in the fact that it has to be something which is going to change the world, um, which I think is great. Um, the things that change the world are fantastic, but I think it does set a very, very high bar. Um, which I think could be pretty dispiriting for the average brand manager or the average shopper marketer who is just trying to do a better thing with his business. So you know, I keep it pretty simple. Is it, is it a completely, is it new to you, to your business? Does it lead to a new action? So a new understanding of something. It doesn't have to be new to the universe, but new to you and your business or your category or your customer. Um, can it lead to an action? Can you see a path? And is it actionable? Because otherwise, there's no value to it. Um, now, that might be for some people a very low bar to th throw. But you know what? I'd rather have more insights and more thinking 
than sit there and say insights are something very, very special and you need to go and sit on top of a mountain for three months and fast before you're ever going to be pure enough to be able to see uh, the purity of a fantastic insight. You know what? Let's get people thinking differently. Come up with something new for your business. As long as you've got some data points to base it on, come up with something new and go out there and test it. We have we have gotten from a beach in Thailand to the top of a mountaintop in the Himalayas on saying, and that's awesome how we got there. I love it. Thank you. I think I've been in lockdown too long, Patrick. <laughs> so good. So I, I want to shift gears uh, if I could, Mike, because um, you're there's so many good pieces going on here. Deeply understanding human behavior, linking it to a commercial value proposition as you think about being a brand marketer, a shopper marketer, or a retailer, right? And all of those brand people are struggling to find growth, right? Growth is the holy grail right now. And if you look at brand equity scores, you look at loyalty scores, certainly in the US, those are all down, right? It's really hard. And so you've got this business challenge, you've got this disruptive environment, you've got this scientific kind of mode of thinking, and I know you guys have a passion around shopper economics and right how to really break that down and get people to understand it. So give us a little bit of a riff on that, and maybe that'll give us a place to kind of go explore a little bit more. So yeah, Patrick. So one of the challenges that um, that we find here is is obviously you know how to make complicated things manageable and straightforward. Um, and if we look at, for example, what we were talking about with Ros earlier about how shopping behavior has changed, and you know you can say at, at a top line level. Well, shoppers are going online, but not every shopper goes online and they don't go online for everything. So you need a toolkit whereby somebody working, if you work for a company that makes potato chips or whatever, you got to be able to sit and think about your shoppers and your consumers in your category. So shopper economics was a response to that. It was something that we built as, as, a, as an analytical tool a few years ago um, and have been using with our clients to help model shopping behavior. Um, and it's coming very, very useful for the, for the pandemic because it goes back to why shoppers are doing it, not just what they're doing. So let me, uh, let me just try and do this very quickly. So um, it's, it's a simple model on the surface. It's got quite a bit, bit of depth and nuance, but the idea is to try and explain why shoppers do what they do. Why do they choose a particular store? Uh, why do they buy a certain category? Um, so if you just hear this relatively simple idea, the shoppers do what they do on a basis of a trade-off between value and cost. We do things which are high value at the lowest cost, fundamentally. So if you visualize a matrix with like a y-axis with high value at the top and low value at the bottom and an x-axis, it's the physics nerd coming out again, right? <laughs> x-axis with easy on the low cost on the right and, and high cost on the left. You'd aim for things in the top right-hand corner, right? High value, low cost. So when it comes to shoppers, that Y value, um, top to bottom, is built of two things. When we go shopping, we try and create, we create value in two ways. First area of value is a link to consumption. You buy something to be consumed, whether it's a meal for your family, whether it's a snack for you on the go, whether it's a fantastic new sound system, uh, to enjoy when you're watching your movie. That's the consumption value. But shoppers don't just do that. There's also shopper value. We make decisions to go to places which are nice to shop. Uh, they may have really nice associates. They may have really cool stores. They may have, um, in some parts of the world, they may have air conditioning. Things that make this a good, nice place to shop. And that's those are the two components of value. 
In terms of cost, that has two components too. There is monetary cost, of course. Um, some, some things cost more, some places cost more. And the other element is time cost. You know, if cost was all about money, we would all be researching every single purchase um, and going to find lots and lots of different places to buy it. We don't. We habitually buy products, which we know we could get cheaper. But you know what? We're going to buy it here, either because the time investment was too high or because the value outweighed the extra cost. So that's a really simple model. And you can put lots of data and metrics around that. Um, and what's the challenge, but the beauty of it is that it enables you to be able to take not just everybody, but your specific group of shoppers. So we can sit there and say that everybody is starting to go online because it's more convenient, right? And when you know during during the pandemic, um, I was more worried about um, my shopper value might have been affected by a need for something that was healthy and hygienic. Um, I may have foregone economic cost and paid to have a delivery because it made sense to me during the pandemic. But you can also bring it down at a lower level and take different cohorts, different segments of shoppers and explain why different shoppers do different things and see that certain shoppers that you're targeting may well end up going online, but others won't because in the future, people are going to sit there and say, well, that, that online shopping is fantastic. That's exactly what I want. It's really convenient. It saves me a huge amount of time. But you know what? I think my husband might be losing his job in the next six months and we got right. to keep money tight. So the extra right. five bucks or 10 bucks for delivery, that's not going to work for me. Right. Other people are going to say, actually, I'm not economically challenged, but I really liked talking to the associate because right. shopping value, that was really important. Yeah. Or I want to go online to so want to touch and feel the product. Right. So I'm going to get value from the shopping experience. And by understanding different shoppers, you can map where they're going to do and what they're going to do for your brand and your business. And I love bringing it down to basic economic principles of value exchange, right? And trying to understand that it may be more than money, it may be more than time, it may be some driver, but what is the driver of the value exchange, right? And taking economics down to its core, elegantly simple, as we said earlier, to really get to the root of value exchange. And it sounds like that's what this model is. As an aside, before I let you answer that, there were at least three or four people listening to this podcast while jogging on a path who totally ran off the path while they were trying to figure out X and Y axes <laughs> a little while ago. Again, and to those people, I'm sorry, please get up and continue. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it is. I mean, like, I mean, all, all things do boil down to some very simple principles, right? Um, and, and it is about that. And, and I think the challenge is to cut through that complexity that we see around us and to cut down to, well, yeah, but why do people do what they do? You know, why is it that if, you know, people sit there and say, we're going to head into a recession, well, that we're not all going to be shopping in Aldi tomorrow, right? right? It's right. not going to happen. Why? Because it's not all about one dynamic. And different people will do different things based on how they look at the world. And that, that's marketing. Marketing is, again, goes back to what we were talking about before. What do we know? We know how people look at the world. We know how that might change in the future. And we can start thinking then about, well, what implications is that going to have on the decisions they're going to make, in this case, about shopping? So, yeah, you're absolutely, it is a value exchange fundamentally applied to the process of shopping, um, which builds in a couple of nuances, which are specific to shopping, but fundamentally, yeah, absolutely. It's, that's why it's called shopper economics. It's, it's economics for shoppers. Brilliant. Yeah. 
So, Mike, you've gone very obviously gone through lots and lots of changes over the the years, and and seen the industry shift dramatically. And uh, you know, I'd love you to just share with with our listeners, you know, based on your insight and your experience over the years, from a personal perspective, one what, what is the one thing? And you know, we always like to ask our guests this: what is the one thing? that you have felt in your career has helped you navigate change and take your teams and businesses through change? If you had to like put your finger on one thing to say, this is my driver of success in navigating change, what would that be? Mm. Yeah, the, the, the boil it all down to one point is always a tough question. <laughs> Look, I think, um, you know what? I've been really fortunate. I mean, I, as I said in my introduction, I've worked in so many different places. You know, I've worked in different countries, different companies, different categories, big companies, small companies. I've run my own startups. Um, and I think, you know, I've learned it's not, it's not about what you know. It's about what you do with what you do know. Um, you know, I've worked in markets. When I started marketing biscuits in Russia, we didn't even know how big the market was. That's how little data we had. There was nothing. Um so I think one of the things that I'd bring to all of this is being comfortable with uncertainty and being comfortable with not knowing, being able to make decisions without knowing. And of course, you've got to manage the consequences of getting it wrong. But as long as you catch it early, that's fine. And how I brought that down into just managing my team, for example, is, you know, when my team come to me and they present some, some facts and some figures and they say, well, this is what we know. And I say, great. So what should we do? And nine times out of 10, they say to me, well, I don't know. And I say, I know you don't know, but still, what would you do? Um, because the real skill that I found is, is if you wait until you know, you will never do anything. And as things get more uncertain, I think that's become a really more important thing for us to be able to do. You've got to be able to take action. You've got to be able to make decisions despite the fact that we don't know and be comfortable with that. Now we have to check and we have to make sure that, you know, when we make a decision, we've got to check and see whether it's working out for us. But we've got to test, we've got to learn, we've got to try. So being more comfortable with that. Yeah, this is a trend we're seeing a lot is this being okay with uncertainty and actually being confident to say, I don't have the answer. Let's work it out. Let's figure it out. Because the industry is changing so much. And in the past, as a leader, you had to have all the answers. You'd had to know, you know, that's what society expected. You're the boss. You should know everything. And now, actually, mm. we, you know, with a lot of our guests um, coming on, the, the strength in a leader is saying, let's figure this out together. And it's not a negative. It's a positive. It actually shows more credibility and humility. So, you know, definitely a big shift in the traditional leadership perception over, over the past few years. So thanks for Mike. That's great. I'm working with a couple of clients now, and one of the the, the corporate mantras and the mission is to drive courageous, courageous people, right? To drive your talent to be more courageous, and that's what I hear you saying, right? You you're not you can't sit and analyze yourself till you're 100% certain. And so the the way we work with clients is say, look, what's happening? So what about what's happening? But get to the freaking now what? Like now yeah. what should you go do? Get to the now what? What? So what? Now what? And be a little bit courageous as you move down that funnel so you can make some decisions. So uh, brilliant insight. Um, Mike, we want to thank you tremendously for uh, for jumping on on the call with us today and sharing a lot of your wisdom, wisdom and expertise. We love all of our guests on Change Cultivators. We particularly love those that I think are maybe have a little offer for our listeners as a, as a little sweetener to the deal. So I may have heard a rumor that there's something we may be able to have in the pipeline that goes a little deeper into some of your thoughts. Can you tell us about that? 
Yes, I do actually. I do. Yeah. So we've been uh, we're recording a number of, number of videos over the last few months, all about COVID and coronavirus and what happens next. Um, and we're bundling that together, together with from my company and also from a company I work with, uh, Shop and Marketing Experts, uh, shopmarketingexperts.com. You can try and check them out. Um, and we're bundling all of this together, together with, by the way, for all of those people who ran off the road while they were jogging, with a <laughs> visualized downloading pack and toolkit of how to do shopper economics. So it's all going to be put together. I'm not sure exactly on the timing, but it will be it will be a paid for service in the future. It's going to be available for free for a really limited time. And if you sign up at Change Cultivators, they will let you know when it is available for free. Awesome. Well, thank you for graciously sharing that with our listeners. I will be among the first to download it and study it. So thank you so much for that. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking your time. Thank you for sharing your expertise and your brilliance. Um, so much good wisdom in that conversation. Uh, very gracious of you to share. Thanks for being on the show. It was awesome. Thank you very much for having me.